Uh, without further ado, let's uh, turn or click in your Bibles to our, chapter, our text from today, which is from Matthew chapter 4, one which we read regularly at the season of Advent in the church that we grew up in. Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, reads like this, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Let's uh, look to the God of the Word before we look at the Word of God, and we'll get some help from Augustine here. O thou who art the light of the minds that know thee, the life of the souls that love thee, and the strength of the wills that serve thee, help us to know thee that we may truly love thee, so to love thee that we may fully serve thee, whom to serve is perfect freedom. And so we ask with the Greeks who asked of Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. For your son's Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, one of the advantages I have is uh, that of having a faithful covenantal companion who has covered my multitude of sins uh, with her love for over three decades. So as I was preparing, I felt like I wasn't getting much traction here. So I asked her, you know, do you think I should just put a little more fire into my talk? And she thought for a moment and said, I think it might be a better idea to put more of your talk into the fire. And so I said, well, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So what can I say? I can only say what Lewis said, isn't it? Those like me, whose imagination far exceeds their obedience, are subject to a just penalty. We easily imagine conditions that we have not reached, and if we share with others what we have imagined, then we may make ourselves and them believe that we have really been there. And yet with the apostle we say, nevertheless, I believe and so I speak, because God is able to make all grace abound to us in Christ Jesus. There are very few thoughts which are good and original, and I make a clear admission that I stand on the shoulders of others throughout. If you recognize your shoulder, I thank you. That itself is standing on the shoulder of Juan Roberts. But here is the context. Matthew, the converted tax collector, is writing about Jesus predominantly to a Jewish audience, and his message is clear. The kingdom of heaven is a predominant theme in his gospel, and he continually shows that how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. I'm going to skip over and do what I call as planned neglect of many of the technical aspects of those things, except to say that the Bible is a book about Jesus. I like what Alistair says, and I find that to be very helpful, that the Bible is a book about Jesus. In the Old Testament, he is, pre he is uh, prophesied in the Gospels, he's presented in Acts, he's preached in the Epistles, he's explained, and in Revelations, he is expected. So with that, all that we want is, like I prayed with the Greeks, sir, we want to see Jesus. What is the main point of this text? And it is this, that you either are in the kingdom of darkness or in the kingdom of light. It's either despair or hope. 
Or if you want to learn a little Latin, you could say post tenebris lux, which is about the only Latin I know, and that is after darkness light, which was the motto of the Reformation. But the main point is that there is darkness and there is death, and in the midst of this, light has dawned and broken through. I thought it might be helpful to just look at the four elements of this simply because that was the way that I seem to make sense of this, and those are the four elements which are there. There's the people there, there's darkness, and there's death, and then there is light. So first, let's look at the people. Who are these people? We know that this passage is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah is talking to the southern kingdom about the impending invasion, and he offers them hope. But in the time of Jesus, Jesus has gone to this area, which is uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee under the Gentiles, under the Roman rule, and he's not limiting his message to geography, because we know that there is a sizable portion of Gentiles living there. But in the days of Isaiah, these people were walking in darkness. Now they seem to be dwelling in darkness, rather like Lot who pitched his tent and finally was sitting inside Sodom and Gomorrah itself. So these people are everyone. It's us. And they are Jew and Gentile, but they are living primarily in occupied territory, but not just Roman occupation, but under bondage to themselves and their desires. That is a greater bondage than any political bondage. And we know that Matthew is not referring to their political bondage because right next verse, he gives the context that Jesus announces the same message that John the baptizer announced, that is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we know that that is the case because the Apostle Paul, writing later in this Ephesian correspondence, says that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, according to the prince of the power of the air, talking about the fact that the ultimate bondage is to the prince of darkness, and the state of this people is that we go to the second one, which is darkness. And darkness in the Bible is a metaphor for many things. We can walk through it briefly from Genesis. It was darkness which was over the world before God brought order. So there's chaos. And we know as we walk through Exodus, that was the ninth plague. It was a sign of God's judgment. But on the cross, it was also a sign of God's abandonment. Matthew 27, you hear the anguished cry of our Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness signified that God had abandoned. If God is light, then surely the removal of God is darkness. But we also see that the same theme follows in judgment in Revelation as John recounts the fifth angel bringing darkness. So it talks about a kingdom which is opposed to the purposes of God, the kingdom of me, myself, and I. And yes, there is no neutral territory. I remember that Ten years ago, when we were asked to apply, when we were applying for the citizenship of this country, we had to give a statement that we have forsaken the citizenship of our native land in which we were born. And that was a decisive moment. The Bible's sober anthropology is that we are not on neutral territory. All of us are in darkness. And when we live in darkness, Paul's analysis in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, is that we are futile in our thinking our understanding is darkened. I'm fond of saying that sin makes us stupid. It's true. That may not be in the Bible, but it is, does say that our thinking, we think ourselves to be wise, professing ourselves to be wise, we are foolish. And we know that every thought and intent of our hearts is evil and sin. 
but perhaps the only place where you'll find the word sin in today's vocabulary is on a dessert menu because sin has gone out of fashion. The problem is sometimes to be that there is a dysfunction, but never sin. And the Bible says that it wasn't just that we died physically, but everything that happened at the fall, the fall was deeper in its effect on us. And one of the ways that it affected us, that it disordered our affections. I love that because I think the problem with us is that not that we don't desire, but we either desire the wrong things or we desire the right things in the wrong proportion. Edwards was fond of saying to his uh, congregation where he was addressing the youth that when he said, don't seek pleasure, but seek God. No, he didn't say that. He said, seek pleasure in God. So our pro what happened at the fall was monumental. We never meet one person on this side of Eden whose desires are not disordered. I, I was just reading the latest article in one of our medical journals. Some of you know that New England Journal. And what a fantastic article it was on a particular disease. So much of research. A few pages down, I'm seeing this other article which talks about a young boy who's seeking antiretroviral therapy for prevention of AIDS to support the lifestyle that he is living. And the whole article was how about getting legal exemption for it. Nothing about is this anything which is right or wrong. It's only about is it legal or illegal. God is not in the equation. So the kingdom of darkness does not have God. But God will not be ignored. For everyone, the Bible says, in Acts, in John chapter 3 and verse 19. Now, all of you are familiar with John chapters 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he came into the world, that he sent his only son into the world, that the world should not be condemned through him, but that the world should be saved through him. But if you scroll down a little bit, in John chapter 3, 19, there is the indictment. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into this world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So that is the sober condition that we are in, in darkness. And, and Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of this, pe this people that they should not see the light of the gospel. So there is darkness, but close on the heels of darkness, he gives us here, Matthew tells us that they were living in the shadow of death. We have a term in the emergency room when somebody is brought in, that's not a good term. It says DOA, dead on arrival. That's the sober anthropology. I remember when the Titanic first set sail, there were so many different classes of people. There were first class, the third class, and the worker class. But a few days later, when the list was hung up in the Cunard office in New York City, there were only two lists. Saved, lost. Death had removed all distinctions. Death is the great leveler, is it? Isn't it? And that's why we don't want to face it. I mean, I think Woody Allen is the quintessential children, child of this generation. You know, he goes about, doesn't want to face death, where he says, you know, I don't mind death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But too bad, Woody. Death is the great leveler. We're not only blind, we are in darkness, we are dead, we are destitute. And there is the eternal death to look forward to. And into that milieu, Isaiah gave that message of hope in the shadow of the Assyrian invasion, which was, at, which was God's judgment. But here, Matthew applies it to the people living in the kingdom of darkness and then points to the light. I always am so encouraged that the Bible doesn't just give us the diagnosis. 
I mean, what kind of doctor is it you would want to go and, and just tell you, okay, this is your diagnosis, and then you're saying, well, where's the treatment? I said, I'm, I, I don't know. I, I can't treat that. That's not a doctor you want to see. But the Bible points us to the hope, and the turning point here is the light. Now, the question is, have you seen the light? I can't imagine in an audience this big here that there are some of you who have assumed that you have seen the light. And I was like that for years. I thought that if I went to church, I must be a Christian. And that wasn't the case because I was interested in, while God created the world in the beginning, in the beginning I was creating myself, my kingdom. But into that kingdom, God brought his light. John 9, 5 says very clearly there is no need to look for Jesus. It says there, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. And as he begins the prologue to the gospel, John introduces him as in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In other words, we don't even see what the kingdom is, what God's principles are until we are in the light. In your light, we see light, Psalm 36, 9. And light here obviously refers to the kingdom of God and its king because right next verse comes Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some of you would be happy to sing with Charles Wesley, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be? Thou, my God, should die for me. Now, that's all information, right? The problem is that information doesn't transform hearts. So we're going to look at some application, which I hope will be the turning point. I always like to say, how does it apply? It must come before, how does it apply to me? So which kingdom are you living in? You know, sometimes we have to look at some of the songs to understand it. I like Dylan's song, you know, the one where he said, you've got to serve somebody. Which kingdom are we living in? I always thought that worship was about coming to church. Louis Gigli offered me a different perspective. Listen to this. Worship is our response to what we value most. As a result, worship fuels our actions, becoming the driving force of all we do. Some of us attend the church on the corner, professing to worship the living God above all. Others, who rarely darken the church doors, would say worship isn't a part of their lives because they aren't, quote-unquote, religious. But everybody has an altar, and every altar has a throne. So how do you know where and what you worship? It's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affections, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. At the end of the trail, you'll find a throne, and whatever or whoever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On the throne is what you worship. Sure, not many of us go around saying, I worship my stuff. I worship my job. I worship this pleasure. I worship her. I worship my body. I worship me. But the trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speaks louder than our words. In the end, our worship is more about what we do than what we say. That's what happened. I was worshiping my education. I thought that if I'm successful in my studies, I'd be respected. My performance, it was a performance-driven identity. 
And God was like a parachute. You only use him when you need to. And I had a pantheon of gods to choose from, 330 million plus one Jesus. So as I began to search for answers, the Lord in his grace was pursuing me. And I love what Pastor Brad said, faith was not a leap into darkness, but a leap into the light. He showed me many infallible proofs that the resurrection was a fact of history. But having known that, it was by faith and repentance that one entered the kingdom. But I found that you can get the people out of Egypt in a day or two or less, but to get the Egypt out of Israel would take a, out of the Egypt out of the people would take a lifetime, because I found that though I was living in the kingdom of heaven, I wanted a diversified portfolio. In other words, would Christ be enough? He is good for eternal life, but what about here and now? Do I really believe that God has given us in his word everything that pertains to life and godliness? And so here I was, I was riding two horses. There was a time in my life I said, well, I'm in the kingdom for good. I got fire insurance. I'm just going to do and do what I want, when I want, how I want, because I love to sin and God loves to forgive. And then one of our life group leaders spoke to me. What a wonderful privilege it was to hear him admonishing. And he used Psalm 1. He said, you know, there's teaching and admonishing. And you remember the verse which says, teaching and admonishing one another in the Lord. And that's what Psalm 1 is all about. You may not think like that, but look at how it starts. Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, not stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. That's admonition. And here's teaching. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord. The problem was I was concentrating on the delight and I needed that brother to come alongside me and say, are you walking in the light? And that's what I would say transformed it. That's why I'm all about life groups. One of the things which attracted us to UBC was that, yeah, the teaching from the pulpit was okay. No, just kidding. That's wonderful. Wonderful. That was a given. But life groups, that's where transformation happened. I never heard of life groups in India, but here, what a wonderful way, the, speaking the truth in love, this brother confronted me, teaching and admonishing one another, speaking the truth in love. And that's one of the things that first I realized that, no, I'm all in. You heard the term in poker, right? You're all in. You better be all in because God is not going to share a condo. You know, part of the problem is sometimes while the unbeliever may think that, yeah, why not, you know, just ride two horses, there is no possibility. Our God is a jealous God. I once heard it told that Oprah didn't care for Christianity because he said that Christian God is a jealous God. I, for one, am glad that he's jealous. He brought me into his banqueting table and his banner over me is love and he's jealous that he will have all of me. He'll have all of you. If you're his child, that's a bulwark for your God is a sovereign God who's good and wise, but he wants all of us. So you are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. That is the indicative. But the indicative doesn't stop. It leads to the imperative. That's gospel grammar. For some of you, this is very basic. But that's how the Bible always talks, isn't it? It doesn't give us a set of moral duties to say, well, do this, don't do that. That would be moralism. But the Bible always says, now that you have seen who I am, this is what you'll want to do. So the indicative of the gospel is you are God's child. Live as God's child. You are citizens of the kingdom. Live as God's citizens. 
live as children of light. I know there are some of you probably who are struggling. One of the reasons, you know, while the unbeliever may live in darkness and may say that, you know, I'm doing good, so I must be okay, the believer sometimes can also live in darkness. And there are two reasons for why the believer may be in darkness. I already told about one, and that is if the believer is living in habitual sin, then he's going to lose the assurance, or at least assurance is not something which the Lord, our God, our Father is a very kind God, but he will to some extent withhold the gift of assurance from children who live careless lives. He does care about his name. That's why First John, the gospel for believers says, walk, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from every sin. Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. What is the, imp what is the imperative which flows from the indicative that we are citizens of a new kingdom on whom light is dawned? First indicator is to obey. Allow what Pastor Brad said, faith is to trust in God's promises and obey his commands. One of the things that I, when I was reading, I said, oh, repent for the kingdom of heaven and Sam. That's for entry into the kingdom. How is that? It's not. Luther said that the life of the Christian is a life of continual repentance, and I was soon to realize that. On the one hand, obedience was tested as the brother came and confronted me and asked me, are you living in the light? I'll see the, say the same thing to my brothers and sisters. Are you living in the light? Are you walking in the light? Part of our challenge as believers is that sometimes we get so familiar with sublime truths that we forget that we also got to live and walk in them. But there was a second thing that Pastor Brad said today, and that is not just obedience, but to trust. You know, that old thing is still true, trust and obey. Trust in his promises. Now, that's go that was going to be shaken some years ago. Now it's been several years, and some of you know this, that when all things are going well, you know, some, today Pastor Brad began by saying, our world is never at a loss for crisis. I found that my life is never at a loss for crisis. I have only two crises every day, people, circumstances. But there was a crisis a few years ago. The crisis was close to home. And our son came in and he said that, I don't believe in God. I don't want to believe in God. In fact, I believe I'm gay and I don't want to have anything to do with the Bible. Don't ask me to come to church. How do you deal with that? It wasn't something that took God by surprise. I mean, there's no plan B with God. So when the storms of life like that old Ghostbuster movie. You remember that song? Who are you going to call? I found three questions that have helped me when I have to ask myself, am I really trusting in God? These are the three questions. Am I willing to sin to get something? Am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose it? Do I run to it as a refuge and comfort? So the storms of life put us in darkness. Now, you may not have sinned, but it feels like darkness. Job never sinned, but it was... So one reason why a believer has darkness in his life is because of sin. For that, the solution is to confess Psalm 28, uh, Proverbs 28, 13, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it. That's the thing. You can't just confess it. It has to be forsaken, putting on the Lord Jesus, putting off the old man. But the other reason... The other problem is that when God puts us through trial, we trust in his promises. I love that waiting and hoping. So what is our waiting? What is our only hope in life and death? 
that I'm not my own, that I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He knows the very hairs of my head that I belong to him. What do you need to live and die in the hope that how great a sin I am and how great a, how great a sinner I am and how great a Savior is? That is trusting in his promises. And the only promise is that I'm with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, we pray. Yes, we long for that day when our son will come to faith. Many of you are praying. I appreciate that. But I remember what Lewis used to put, in, uh, put it in the mouth of the children. You remember that uh, episode in Silver Chair? The children have muffed a lot of signs, and they come to this place. They've seen this guy who's tied up, and they're asking, what, oh, how sh what should we do now? And at that point, one of them asks, if we obey Aslan, will everything turn out all right? You remember the response of the children? It would be good to memorize that. Aslan never told us what will happen if we obey him. He only told us to obey. That's the hard part, isn't it? To obey, but you know what drives it? The character of God. He is sovereign. There is nothing that happens outside his purview. He, the God of providence. Providence is God's directed sovereignty. He's also a God who is wise. Some of you are in darkness because of trials. I don't know your specific trial, but God knows. And... He is bringing us where he will have all of us. That he brings us to a place like the psalmist in Psalm 73 as Asaph. You remember what he says? He starts off so full of complaints and he ends it by saying, Whom am I in heaven and on earth beside you? You alone are the joy of my heart. All my springs are in you. That is really the hope of the believer that we might be drawn close to him. And how do we do that? We do that by drawing near to him. Only those who can say, The Lord is my light and the Lord is my salvation, can truly declare, of whom shall I fear? We go to the word of grace, we go to the throne of grace, the word of God, and our prayer. Before this crisis, we thought prayer was an option. Oh, it's one of those nice things that a Christian ought to do. It was a spare wheel. When this crisis happened, it became the steering wheel. It's like oxygen. You don't really have to tell somebody to get oxygen when they don't have oxygen. They want it. They crave it. Is that how you feel for God? Those who have seen the light ought to walk in the light because we have that hope that he who began a good work will complete it. You know, our hope is that eventually there's no going to be any darkness. John gives us that wonderful vision in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 23. There is going to be any power supply problem in heaven because the Lamb is the light of the new Jerusalem. What a wonderful hope we have. And some of you are looking at me and saying, I know all that you're saying, Dan, but I can't. But I'm glad you say that because I love the prayer of Jehoshaphat. You remember what he said when he saw all the army? He said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. You tell me and show me Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet and Lear, and ask me to write it. So wrote John Stott, he was quoting William Temple in a little piece called Radical Discipleship, as he talks about growing in Christ-likeness. He says, you give me a play like Shakespeare's King Lear or Hamlet and ask me to write it, I can't. Shakespeare could, I can't. But if somehow the genius of Shakespeare could come and live inside me, then I could do it. God's will for us is to become like Christ who depended on the Father who said that my meat is to do the will of him. I do always those things which please him. Our agenda in life is always only one, 
My goal in life is to please God. I please God by becoming like Jesus Christ. And his will for us is that we might be drawn to him, remembering that not only is a sovereign God, sometimes we look at the sovereignty of God in cold terms, saying that somehow he's untouched, but a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He walks close to us and says, I know you. I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. That is our Jesus. What a wonderful thing to know that all our cares and worries are in the hands that were pierced for us. That is Jesus. I told you before, eventually, what I want is that we might see Jesus. And this is the light. This is Jesus. This is the one who has gone before us, who says, I have gone before you. I have prepared a place. And if I go, I go there to prepare a place. So as we come to the end of this short devotion, I'm, I suppose it wasn't as short as I hoped it would be. Somehow, somehow God didn't hear your prayers. Clarity and brevity are my only two weaknesses. But I hope that one thing is clear, that eventually we want Christ to be made big in our lives. That is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So that if they wake us up in the middle of our night and say, what ticks you? What, what is your driving motivation? What gets you up in the morning? We may say it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray, shall we? Again, our Father and our God, we've spoken much. Pray that whatever was not glorifying to you may remove, leaving us only with the fragrance of Christ, that when we leave this place, people may know that we have been in Jesus. So fill us with your Holy Spirit so that people may see in us Christ, the light of the world, the hope of our glory, and the one who is our Savior and Redeemer. In his name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.